Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. Today we're joined by Russ Heddleston, founder and CEO of DocSend. DocSend is one of the most ubiquitous document sharing products in the tech industry today. What started out as a simple product to send links has turned into a holistic and robust suite of workflows, privacy settings, and analytics for documents. So much so that large software companies have taken notice. Dropbox recently acquired DocuSend for $165 million. In this conversation, Russ and I chatted through the founding story of DocSend, how they grew the business through product-led growth, interesting insights learned from being on the other side of thousands of pitch decks, and what the future for DocSend looks like inside of Dropbox. So Russ, welcome. Thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Ramin. Yeah. So Russ, excited to have you on the podcast today. We're going to dive pretty deep into the journey of DocSend. Uh, from start through acquisition. I want to start the discussion with the founding story of Docsun. How did you and your co-founders come up with the idea? Yeah, sure. So it's one of those stories where we started with the team and then had the, uh, you know, kind of came together later to, to create a company. Sometimes I talk to founders and it's like age of four, they had this thing and they're like, my whole life is going to be creating this thing. And I'm like, always impressed when I hear that. But uh, for, for us, uh, Dave and Tony are my co-founders at, at Docsend, and we've all been friends since 2003. We went to undergrad at Stanford together. We worked at another company called Graystripe. Uh, I sold my first company as a talent acquisition to Facebook, left Facebook, and we kind of got the three of us back together. And then as we were going through ideas that we had to make a company out of, the, the, the first time around when I first started Pursuit, I thought we jumped into it a little too quickly. We started writing code because both the co-founders are software engineers and there's a temptation to write code. So for DocSend, we spent a few months interviewing people, researching other similar technologies and you know, just couldn't prove that it was a bad idea. We thought people are, are still sending a lot of attachments. The, those things clock up inboxes, they're not secure. You don't know what happens to them. The, they get out of date right away. And so you know, we saw a lot of enterprise technologies with some of the components that we liked, but we didn't see anything that was kind of like a down market, you know, anybody could use it. Uh, kind of off the shelf product. Like there were some, but none of them were great. Uh, and you know, none of them were like taking off or anything. Um, so we came out with the first version of DocSend, uh, you know, with, in, uh, well, basically the kind of end of 2014, but we started the company in 2013 and um, gave it to some first beta users. They liked it and we're like, okay. So then we went off and raised a seed round of funding from Jeff had uncorked and had been kind of running since then. It's interesting because we have, I think we've had the benefit of the decade or so now where we've seen a bunch of products like DocuSign, Calendly, SurveyMonkey, I think that were pretty written off in their early days, right? And for, for a couple of reasons, I think, I think probably three primary ones. One, a lot of folks thought those were, you know, features, not products. I think yeah. the second was people thought as standalone companies, they were probably chasing, you know, too small of a market. Um, mm -hmm. Probably pretty laughable in hindsight, right? But they mm -hmm. thought they were chasing too small of a market. And then the third and probably the most prevalent reason, um, you know, I had heard was they were likely to be killed off by larger companies, right? How do you, I'm curious if any of those three were kind of part of the calculus as you guys were thinking through kind of the ideas in the early days um, and how might you react or kind of think through those, those questions kind of from, you know, the rust of let's say seven, eight years ago, you're getting docs on started, right? How do you, how do you frame or think through those questions? They're really good questions. Um, and so, you know, taking them, in order, is it a product? Is it a feature? Or is it a feature product or company? You know, we, we looked at, at Docsend and 
you know, we thought like, well, who else would, would build it? it? At minimum, it was a product. And we also thought it, it could be a company. Um, and then when we looked at the, the market size, you'd say, well, what is the market size? And so a lot of people think of DocSend as just being a fundraising tool. And we were fine getting started in fundraising. Um, we thought that market was 60 to 70 million in potential total ARR. So too small for a big company to pay attention to. But as we interviewed users in different use cases, we realized that the workflows are all the same. You have to describe it a little bit differently to any end user. But what we looked at the TAM as is how many documents are being sent from one company to another company. And that's billions, that's a lot. That's not like an SMB problem, that's also an enterprise problem. Like when you look at like a bank and how many documents they're sending externally, like, okay. And then it was like, well, to your third point, is someone else gonna build it? We're like, well, there's Microsoft DRM, there's some sales enablement tech. Google or Microsoft or Box, Dropbox, someone should go build this thing. And so there's always that threat. Whatever you're building, there's always that threat. So the answer we came up with was I networked my way in and got introductions to people running product or the CEO whenever possible of companies that I thought should build DocSend. And then I just asked them. I was like, hey, here's the concept. Uh, what do you think? And they're like, oh, it's a smart idea. We've thought about doing that. You know, it's like everything is, every, no, no ideas are new. And, um, but none of them were going to build it. We got some talent acquisition offers, but that wasn't interesting because I'd just been through that with, with Facebook. And also, you know, in my time at Facebook, I would, you know, as a product manager running uh, product for the pages team, um, I like the business side, everything with a like button on it, which is great experience. I would, you know, talk to founders every once in a while who were building something tangential and they were always very cagey about talking to me about their idea. But in my mind, I'm like, I'd be so bad at my job if I just dropped what Facebook was doing to go pursue this. I'm like, oh my God, someone's got an idea. It's like, there are no new ideas. <laughs> uh, they had more to gain than to lose by sharing with me what they thought was an insight. And then I could, if I was like, oh, we're actually coming out with that, you know, a month or two, you know, then that's, that's quite bad. But if it's like, oh, that's a good idea, but you know, probably not going to do that in the near future. Anything that's like, you know, two years out is for sure never going to get built at a big company, <laughs> even if they like recognize it. So I'm glad we did that research because when we went off and fundraised, people would ask like, what about the defensible moat? And, um, you know, we, I was like, well, th there isn't one in a traditional sense around, uh, you know, like th there's no network effect to, to DocSend, um, but it is really hard if you're an enterprise product to come down market, much easier to, to go up market. So we started building DocSend to make it elegant. And so a lot of the companies that have tried to compete with us have had relatively clunky solutions and the software is cheap enough that people prefer it. They just like it more. So that has been our advantage. Um, and so, you know, Jeff at Uncork to his credit was like, oh, you know, this, he's like, this just, just makes a lot of sense to me. Like I would, I would use this product. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we led the round and we filled it out and we were, we're going since then. But to your other point previously, there are examples of companies that kind of, like kind of stalled a little bit in the middle or at least from the outside, like DocuSign was like 50 people for years, you know, and they just kept going. Like at a certain point, if you do product that growth and you make just a great product, it starts to compound in a really, really interesting way. Um, and so I do think there are gonna be more companies like SurveyMonkey, like Calendly, uh, like LucidChart even, uh, that kind of have a similar playbook around it. But if you looked at them at the beginning, you'd say that market's too small or that product's not defensible, but, you would, you would also have to agree that the concept is one that should exist in the world. So the question is, where is it gonna live at a big company or at a new company? And, you know, taking the odds on this, like startups are just able to focus 
big companies have different priorities, different skill sets for people there. Um, so it's possible you do see startups get squashed, but I think more often than not, um, as an entrepreneur, you have to run your own race. And if you believe that what you're building should be a thing in the world, you just got to follow the thread and keep going. I think that's one of the interesting things we've seen with a bunch of these companies is just when you have the tailwinds of software, right? And, and if you kind of have this general premise or belief that software is going to get more adopted, right? Um, then mm -hmm. it's a pretty great tailwind to be behind. Um, and, and I think one of the interesting things you, you called out there, and I want to double click into this, is this product-led growth strategy piece, right? So you guys built Doxin with that type of strategy. Um, explain to us, Russ, what that means and the mechanics of that type of strategy versus a non-product-led growth approach. Yeah, product-led growth is still being defined and people are writing books on it and stuff. I would say for you know, Dave, Tony, and I, we wanted to build for the end user, not the economic buyer. So especially if you're in B2B land, like all of our customers are businesses using Doxun for work as opposed to you know, their personal lives. So consumer is a whole separate conversation in my mind. And consumer is almost always product-led because you can't spend much to acquire users. It's got to be some mechanic. And um, you know, there's also kind of the virality that one could talk about with the network um, that can be very, very strong. There's just very few of those businesses. And you, you can also argue that a marketplace can be product-led so because it's two-sided and you got to build it up. And, you know, but at least in the business, like the business world of software, I think of product-led as building for that end user and making your product easy enough to use that it just kind of spreads itself, not just virally. The number one channel for Doxin has actually always been word of mouth. People use it. It just works really well. And then we just keep making it better. So an example of what wouldn't be product-led would be to say, okay, we've got some really big 100,000, 500,000 million dollar a year contract. Let's go get 20 more of those. And so you do see companies like DocuSign now are like 90% enterprise. So they started off SMB, but they've actually gotten to the point where they could go enterprise. Um, and then you and basically stand up multiple teams, one of which makes then the user product experience better. The other one that makes like the enterprise product better. But when you're starting off as a, as a startup, you know, I think there are two paths. One is like, let's just make a great product and find consumer tactics to grow it or marketing tactics to grow it. And then the other one is like, let's go land really big contracts. Let's understand the economic buyer and then, you know, like be able to get LOIs. And then, and then the end user experience is like not as important as like understanding the enterprise into which you're selling. And they're, they're just really different playbooks. So whenever I see a startup that says they're doing both, I'm like, you usually have to pick one <laughs> uh, just because focus is the most important thing. And so do you think about Doxin as more of a, and this might not be mutually exclusive, but do you think of it more as a product play or a distribution play? And what I, what I mean by that is, you know, is the winner in the space the one that actually has the best product or is it the one that cracks the nut on distribution and then ultimately creates inertia, right, for users or so? How do you, how do you think about kind of that relationship between, you know, product and distribution? Yeah, so this distribution, I'm always jealous of a company that finds a way to spend a ton on demand gen or something. Um, but you know, distribution in an enterprise world is pretty straightforward around like outbound sales, like outbound marketing, like those sorts of tactics. And then when you're looking at kind of down market B2B, typically demand gen is one of those things where everything has been pretty optimized. So it's kind of rare to be able to find some like demand gen angle. Um, I think for, for us, it's we want to continue to just have the best product on the market and then we keep evolving the footprint of what we do. So for instance, Doxend started off as just 
easy way to send and track links, links to documents. You're like, okay, that sounds pretty simple, but hey, a lot of people like that, that starts to take off. And then we've added more and more expensive plans over time as we've added more functionality. So now DocSend is like a full virtual data room. That's like, you know, like a $4 billion market. So it's like over $2 billion a year in spend. It's like actually a little bigger than the entire e-signature market today. And when you look at the incumbents that are there, they started enterprise, they haven't been innovating for a very long time. And so there's very much like a disruption from below uh, thing that happens. And it depends on the vertical, but in the fundraising use case for DocSend, we found a really smart way to have a data-driven approach to content. So uh, what I mean by that is we're able to identify that people who wanna go fundraise have a lot of questions about how does fundraising work? Because DocSend is used for fundraising, we have to be very careful about this because it's all opt-in. So we'll ask founders, hey, contribute your data. We do analysis on it and we come out with these like really interesting takeaways that we just put out as content, just free content. And that content spreads itself quite a bit. And then people are like, oh, what, what is this DocSend thing behind the content? Uh, and then, and then they, they come over to us. So that, that works super well. But again, our number one source of traffic is still word of mouth. Like you use our product, you like it, and you recommend it to someone else, which is just really cool to see. And that is the case because as we evolve and make the product bigger, we still keep it pretty simple and pretty easy to use. So we'll, we'll always prioritize a feature request that shows up in support a lot, like a rough edge in the product over some new shiny, if we add this new feature set or something, maybe it'll result in more, more revenue. We are, we're always like err on the side of just making the product simple, clean, useful, and then slowly over time expanding all the different workflows that it's applicable to. Yeah, and to your point, you guys, so you collect a bunch of interesting data. I think that's one of actually the probably lesser known um, aspects of the product, right? I think that's pretty interesting. I wanna talk through some of those insights you guys have collected on fundraising. Um, you have this graphic that you have on pre-seed, seed, and A fundraises, and you guys have segmented the most viewed and the least viewed sections by stage. Uh, and I want you to walk through this for us. It was actually pretty counterintuitive for me, I'll be honest, when I saw it, and not what I would have expected. Um, yeah. Maybe that's a tell on kind of the way I invest in companies, right? At, at the pre-seed, I think I would have expected to see much more emphasis on product and team you know, and at the A more around traction and market size. So talk through this kind of graphic a little bit and maybe use this, you know, we can extrapolate out a little bit, even Russ, on just some of the, you know, non-intuitive or interesting insights you guys see, you know, when you're collecting, you know, when you're on the other side of all of this kind of deck information. Sure, yeah, and maybe just to, to preface this, I'll say the, the, the reason we started coming out with this research was that, you know, and I'm sure you've, done, you've been to like conferences where there'll be like a panel on how to raise money and it'll be a bunch of, investors that are kind of saying like, here's what I want to see. So we really wanted to come at it with the entrepreneur in mind and support them because the first time I raised money, I got a lot of very anecdotal advice from folks like, hey, this is what worked for me, do this. Hey, this didn't work for me, so don't do this. But most people don't want to talk about it if it didn't work for them. So, you know, for, for us, we're, we're, the question was like, well, what, like, what is true and how does it really work? And because of, you know, the situation that DocSend is being used for the pitch decks that are being sent around to investors in order to get the meeting. And it's typically the biggest drop off in your funnel is like, just how do you get to meetings? Um, you know, well, what's in other people's pitch decks? And then what's in the successful ones and the failed ones? And because it's all anonymous and aggregate and people opt into it, uh, and then we were able to, to do this analysis, like it's, it's easier for them to like, like be part of it. Uh, so we, we get a pretty high opt-in rate. And then, you know, we, 
for the very first one, we worked with uh, Harvard Business School, my old professors there to try to keep us honest, but also like just have another set of eyes on it, like what is true or not. And, you know, like one of the interesting things is like, there's both more engagement and less engagement with pitch decks than one would think. So, you know, I think it was like three and a half minutes to start. Now it's below three minutes, which is actually caused by the pandemic. But in my mind is, is largely good because investors are getting much more efficient in reading pitch decks. Uh, mm -hmm. There are also a lot more like 20 and 30 second views in pitch decks than there were before the pandemic. So people are only getting to page five and then bouncing out. Um, and so investors are just looking at a ton more pitch decks, which is great. If you're a, founding, a founder and you're looking to raise a pre-seed, it's more likely now that you'll get eyes on your pitch deck than it was previously. So that's good. But then in terms of like, where are investors spending their time? There, there are a couple of things at play. One is that more time is not necessarily good time. So, you know, to some degree, the product slides are essential for, you know, pre-seed and seed. And then to your point, yeah, later on, the business metrics become more important. Um, but it's, it's not necessarily the case that more time is better time. In many instances, when the failed, when we're looking through failed decks, like people will spend more time on the business model. Mm. And, you know, if, if you went through and like looked at a bunch of these things that, you, you know, you, you, you'd be like, I don't get it. So I just, I found myself like reading them for, for longer and I'd be like, I don't understand. I just don't understand what they do, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, really good decks have like pretty consistent view times throughout them. They don't have like big standout areas. What you will see is like someone coming back on a second or third visit to go read more on different sections, which is good. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's fascinating to look like by like type, like the number of pre-seed decks that include financials is like so interesting to me because like you don't have financials at pre-seed. You're like, we're just losing money, you know? <laughs> and if your best slide is your financial slide, maybe you don't be fundraising. Maybe you just have a good business at this point. Um, but if you do include financials, those things get read a lot. So you should be mindful of, you know, where people are going to spend their time. Um, so many things to go through, but I'll pause there. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I think the one of the interesting ones for, and you kind of called it out was the time piece, right? So um, I, I read a report your team put out and basically said, look, you know, average time spent reviewing on a deck is down from three minutes and 44 seconds to two minutes and 46 seconds over the last five years. Uh, it sounds small, but two key differences. A, it's 30% less time, right? So it's material. And then the second is the average time is less than five minutes. Right, yeah. which really means people are honing in on a few slides to get the gist, and then they're making a decision on when, whether they want to take the meeting or not. Um, mm -hmm. I thought that piece alone, and, and I'd love for you to kind of expand on that a little bit, but I thought that kind of nugget alone for so many founders can be such a helpful insight, right? Which is, we kind of anecdotally, to your point earlier, we, we talk about, you know, get to the point, be concise, be crisp, et cetera. But you can actually see that, you know, not only were investors kind of in the 2015 time period spending less than four minutes, now folks are spending less than three minutes right mm -hmm. on decks. Yeah, and we're still again in odd pandemic zone where when the pandemic started last year, we were like, oh, well, what's gonna happen to the fundraising market? So we started tracking it in aggregate and we have this all up on our marketing site. So you can see kind of week over week, year over year interest levels. And um, you know, there was a pause last year, everyone kind of took stock of their portfolios and stopped investing. And then they're like, oh, software will be fine. And then people weren't going to conferences, they're not on planes. So they're just reading a lot more decks that get sent to them. Um, but as they do that, they're becoming more discerning and they're dropping off after 30 seconds in many cases. So, you know, the, the average is down, the, the median is not as much um, because you just see people being less tolerant 
And yeah, to your point though, it was always less than five minutes, which is kind of a shockingly short amount of time. Um, so if you're a founder and you're like, I've always said like, yeah, to your point, be concise, be crisp. Like if you've got this giant business plan thing with like really high word counts, like no one's really gonna read it. You can't in that much time. Maybe they'll go back later. But again, the point is to get the meeting. Like that, that's the point of your pitch deck. And I often get the question, like, do I need a pitch deck? And I'm always like, well, not always. Like if you're a second time founder or already been successful, no. But even then it's a useful exercise because one, it'll help screen out investors who have a competitive you know, investment or they just don't believe in your space. Like I just don't do hardware, you know? And that saves you time as a founder. Like, so you're not pitching people where it was a foregone no. And then the second reason that it's useful to create a pitch deck is that it's a good way to practice your storytelling. Because as a founder, you're going to have to go hire people. You're going to have to raise more money. You're going to have to go get customers. You're, you're going to have to like, you know, IPO or sell your business someday. And the more practice you can have getting your narrative down and like understanding the pieces of it um, is, is just really important practice. And I have an analogy, which would be like creating like a hit song or something. Like you hear a really catchy song. You're like, that's a pretty catchy song. I like that. If I'm like, for me, come up with a catchy song, you'd be like, that's a lot harder. And so when you, when you read a good narrative, you're like, that makes a lot of sense. At the end of it, you're like, why doesn't this exist? This is insane. This should exist. Um, but then if you have to go back and create one on your own, it's really hard. So, you know, even as a founder, if you're able to raise without a deck, you need to practice that narrative building at some point, just because of how many times you're going to say it <laughs> and how many flavors of it you're going to have, like for different audiences, as you go about building your business. Totally. Yeah. I, one of the things I like to tell founders now is kind of you know, attention spans have never been shorter, but consideration spans have probably never been longer, which is we're kind of in this barbell of a world, right? Folks either spend, you know, 10 seconds on a TikTok or they'll watch a three hour Netflix documentary, but kind of the, the middle is no man's land, right? And so you have to really clear right, with your objective, which is the deck is to your point, it's to get the meeting. It's not to have, it's not to be in the consideration zone. That's for the mm -hmm. conversation, et cetera. But you have to know kind of which, which vehicle you're using at which point in your process, you know, basically to basically to push the process through. I, one of the really cool things I like uh, that Docsend is doing is kind of taking this foundational layer of, you know, we, we've got a ton of insights that are coming in and then we're able to see those insights or basically build kind of tangential things off of that platform or that foundation, right? So one of the, one of the examples of that is the underrepresented founder network productizing your research and then helping underconnected uh, or rather unconnected or underrepresented founders reaching investors through a docs and fundraising network. I want you to talk a little bit more about this initiative, but again, maybe we can use this as an example just to take a step back to say, when you do have this foundational set of information and data, and you're probably in the best position in the world, having the most amount of data, let's say on pitch decks, for example, it can seem seemingly innocuous, but you can build all sorts of interesting things like a Docsend fundraising network, you know, off of that base. So maybe talk a little bit more, you know, about the Docsend fundraising network specifically, but we can, you know, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts and kind of extrapolating that as an example for all sorts of other interesting, you know, types of things you guys are thinking about or, or maybe are coming down the pike. Yeah, it, that's a great question. And I do think that, you know, for any founder, depending on the company that they are starting, the insight they have, there are probably some superpowers that are lended to that. You know, if you're Facebook, you've got certain network effects. If you know, you're Hotmail also, if you're like, whatever your business is, you know, you're, you're gonna have some superpowers just based on the properties of what you're, you're building. And for Docsend, to your point, one of those is just the amount of data we have in our system on 
these really important documents being sent and then the consumption patterns of those documents and then the outcome. Um, and for us, as, as I said earlier, we're a horizontal technology that we market vertically. That means that as we market it vertically, we, we can go pretty deep. We don't wanna build Docsin as a product only for fundraising, but on our marketing team, yeah, we can stand up you know, specific marketing programs just for a vertical because you know, the more Docsin is used in fundraising doesn't preclude us from going into data rooms, going into banking, going into sales teams, going into you know, support, customer success, M&A. You know, there are all these other ones where you know, we could use the similar playbook around the data or not, depending on what that audience cares the most about. So looking specifically at fundraising, you know, yeah, to your point, we, we saw like, hey, this is an area where people don't know what the right answer is around like what's in the average deck or not. But then we also hear like in like venture capitalists, the majority of them use Docsend for their fundraising and investor relations. So we also hear from them complaining about their fundraising, but also hear from them complaining about deal flow. So you're like, fundraising is just like one of those things where I think nobody's happy, the investor or the founder, everyone's like, this is kind of sucks. And so for us, we're like, well, you know, well, how much would it take to stand up like, you know, a marketing program here where we just kind of connect the two and with a little bit of tech on the background, a back end, and just like a couple of people were able to do a pretty decent job of screening. So only 10 to 20% of the decks we get from founders are ones that pass the quality bar where we're interested in sending it off to investors. And on the investor side, I think we've got near a hundred, like really high quality investors, like lead investors, they're going to lead you around. Cause I often thought as a founder, like Angel, that's awesome. I, I appreciate that. But as soon as you get a lead, everything else goes quickly. So, so just focusing on lead investors and ones that we think are just really good people. You know, there's also that problem as a founder where, you know, we, we do hear anecdotally some not great stories about some investors and, and, you know, it's, it's really rare, but um, you know, it's been known to happen. So, you know, we kind of have this like kind of two-sided marketplace. Is it a separate business? No, that does not feel like a separate business. People have tried to make a business out of it, but for, for docs and, it's just a great opportunity to try to level the playing field in terms of access, at least to those intros with high quality investors uh, to help them. So every time we help a company get funded, I'm always just like, oh, this makes me very, very happy. <laughs> and not only do they like like Docsend, you know, it, it's not something we'd ever charge for either. Again, it's just to create goodwill within that community. And there's kind of a cap on how big it can be, but as, as like a service, I think it's a no brainer service. It's like a, it's like a really great service that we can, we can offer. What are some of the other interesting things that you're excited about? So like, that's that's one example of what you can build off of kind of this foundation or platform of data. What what else uh, What else are kind of things that you guys think about or whiteboard about? Well, there's there's the product perspective, there's the marketing perspective, you know, on, on the product side, it's been getting into more complicated workflows around data rooms, which are the same as investor portals, which are the same as like, sales deal rooms, you know, and then there it's not like I'm sending you one document. It's like I'm sharing 15 or 20 or 500 or a thousand documents and I need to share different subsets with different people, but then I need that insight on top of it. That gets us into new markets where people have different questions about like what, what goes into a data room or not, or like what correlates to success or, and so we're, we haven't done anything there yet, but I mean, that would be an obvious one for us to do. And then same in the, the sales world, when you look at, you know, the, any individual user has a very vested interest in giving themselves the best chance of a good outcome. And so what correlates there? Engagement, stakeholders involved, 
like time spent types of assets that are being used. And so there's a way that we can be pretty helpful uh, to any of those users. Again, because these are situations where there's usually it's pretty high stakes. The documents are important and the consumption of those documents or the insured security of those documents is something that that's pretty, pretty key. Yeah. Russ, to round out the conversation, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Dropbox. So you were recently acquired by Dropbox for $165 million. First of all, congratulations. Uh, Thank you. How did that deal come together and why did you decide Dropbox was the right partner home for Docsend? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so, you know, going back to uh, when I said earlier around when we started Docsend, I went and kind of knocked on the doors of people who I thought should build Docsend. <laughs> and that was good to have a relationship. Um, and, you know, kept in touch over, over time. And, you know, we, we were pretty capital efficient with Docsend, not, not because like we were averse to, to raising more money and we could have raised a lot more money. It's more because our philosophy was we want to build a great company and we're not keeping score based on headcount or like dollars raised. So, you know, as we'd find growth levers, we'd do that. And it, it really has been like, you know, a hockey stick. And we got an inbound from another company in December and it had been talking to Dropbox and went over to them and say, hey, there's actually a pretty good strategic fit here. And so for, for us, what was really exciting is just the user base that Dropbox has. And so the ability of like one plus one equals five is very exciting. And there's a lot of like similarities between Dropbox and Docsend in terms of how we go to market, you know, you know product first, which, which is not to say we don't value salespeople in the business side because we 100% do. It's, it's just, you know, we're not like devoted as an, an, an enterprise company, you know. So there's a lot of similarities that are, that are there. And we just got to know them and, you know, came out with something we thought was like pretty fair and reasonable. And for me, it's something I'm super proud of. They didn't buy it because, you know, they're like, oh, well, we hope it, they like bought it because it's like a really well-performing business and it's an exciting opportunity. And so for, for them, it's like, could they have, like to our conversation point earlier, could they have like built the box end? They could have built some parts of it, but in the build versus buy like equation, if you have like a relatively small team that's been like really dedicated to solving this problem, you know, that's a really much faster time to market. So um, there ended up, because we only raised $15 million for, for Docsend, you know, there ended up being a pretty big, like possible zone of like good outcome for everyone involved. Uh, and they just seem like, uh, the best partner for us in the next chapter. Yeah. I think the one plus one equals five thing is, is so key in the, in the build or buy decision, because it's, it's, uh, it's not the incremental value of kind of 150, 200 million, you know, the asset itself, it's, you know, can you 10 X that in a, in a reasonably short period of time? With all mm -hmm. the assets, you know, both of the company you're acquiring as well as well as the home base. Russ, this was this was awesome. I, I really enjoyed having you on and, and kind of sharing a bunch of insights on how you guys have built a, a really cool and and um, you know really cool and great company. You guys, you know, should be and I'm sure you are, you know, proud of. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks for coming on and, and excited to see how you know Docsound hits that next chapter inside of Dropbox now. Great. Thanks for me. Really appreciate it.